just like to acknowledge, uh, I guess what it felt like to come into the room at four o'clock having myself not done the long sit with some of you and just coming into the space and feeling, feeling the effort, feeling the concentration, uh, dedication, commitment to the practice. I know that most of you haven't done a long sit like that. And knowing that it takes courage to do that. And also to acknowledge uh, those of you who trusted yourself uh, and gave yourself permission to do something else. I'd actually like to uh, one-up George. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Tonight's talk will be about five hours. <laughs> Make yourself comfortable. <laughs> so I'd like to talk a little bit tonight about uh, where we're going, actually. Sort of like, where is the practice pointing us? So there's a few things we know based on the talks that we've given, the specific instructions in the morning. We've been repeating them, coming at them from different angles. We're becoming, in a way, very intimate with our personal experience through the body. Some of us are doing that by bringing our attention to the breath different sensation in the body, working with touch points. I usually put sound in this category because we often teach sound as an anchor when we, <clears throat> when we teach breath and sensation. I know from interviews that some of you are exploring the second foundation of mindfulness, Vedana, feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. It's actually a very natural extension of the first foundation. Once the mind gets gathered, you know, the awareness, I'm uncomfortable, uh, this is unpleasant, or, you know, a moment of well-being where the body feels very open and spacious, the awareness of that will arise naturally. So we're overlaying a structure, a way to look at experience so that when it happens, we we can possibly more easily recognize it. Pleasant, unpleasant. And then Dave started to talk about investigation, looking at the filter that's looking at or experiencing experience itself. So feelings, thoughts, and perceptions. So to some degree this is obvious. Saying it differently, what we're doing is developing 
concentration and mindfulness and trying to do it in a container of care or metta. I'd like to share uh, an image uh, from the Buddha's life. I'm not sure where I got this. I'm glad Josh isn't here to (laughs) corroborate or otherwise. (laughs) It actually, in a sense, it doesn't matter. It's it's more folklore, myth, and I don't know where I read it, but it really is one of these images that stuck. And the image is of the Buddha's birth. And as the story that I read goes, when the Buddha is born, he immediately stands on two feet. You know, so you can picture an infant which can't stand on two feet. And, the, and, and Siddhartha Gautama is standing on two feet. Naked, perhaps, and I'm imagining with his with his arms up, <laughs> his little penis is hanging out. <laughs> and as the story goes, he proclaims very directly, first words out of his mouth. You have to picture him; he's an infant standing up, and he says, "I am the conqueror of the world." <laughs> So right from the start, we know this guy's going somewhere. (laughs) He's not going to settle for minimum wage. And as the the story goes, when he was a young man, he was uh, discontented uh, for a variety of reasons. And you can imagine that at the time that he lived in India, I mean, spiritual teachings abound in teachers, and uh, presumably he had access to uh, different teachings and schools of thought and, uh, you know, what we could probably call yogic practices. I don't really know what they would have been, but the story goes that he became interested in uh, development through these tools and, you know, practiced with one teacher, learned the teachings, did the practices, was quite earnest in his practice, developed some mastery, went on to another teacher, studied, practiced, whatever it was that they did together, uh, developed some mastery. And uh, this happened a few times, and I think one teacher even said, you know, uh, you know you're, you've really got a handle on this, you're, you're, you're quite good at the practice, and maybe you could, uh, maybe you could help, you could be, you know, uh, 
you know, the big man on campus here. We can do this together. Uh, it'd be pretty easy going for you. I could use your help. And uh, he went on. He went on to continue his practice. Kept, kept studying, kept meditating, or doing breathing exercises, or, you know, again, whatever they would have been doing at that time. My understanding is that he learned quickly, was adept, adept enough such that he was asked to teach, and also that he recognized that while there were many occasions in the practice that he did feel good, that there were also times when he wasn't practicing that he didn't feel good, that he wasn't free of suffering, that he wasn't... Something uh, still needed to be done. He wasn't, he wasn't satisfied, basically. So, presumably, this is why he then left and went out and, you know, went to the forest and began to explore uh, mind and heart in a way that, as a result, gave us the teachings that we have now. And I think what was probably happening is that he was given instructions and concentration, which is what fundamentally yoga is. It's a concentration path. And it wasn't enough. And he went out and developed what became mindfulness or insight meditation. And as a result of this, uh, Siddhartha Gautama ended up uh, with the name uh, Buddha, which means awake. I never really thought of it until yesterday, but that, that became really interesting to me, you know. His name is awake. This is you know, pointing to something that's significant. You know, it's not Bob or... Cornelius. The, dude, the dude's name is Awake. I uh, went on a long retreat once um, overseas, and on the first day, uh, one of the attendants uh, took me and another person to go say hi to the teacher and pay our respects in a way that's customary. And the teacher said, how long will you be here? And I told him how long we would be here. And he said, well, what we do here is we, we teach people how to wake up. That's what we do. That's the curriculum. That's what we're doing. And that had never really happened in any of the retreats that uh, I had done in the, in the West. There's often a focus on, I don't want to, feeling good, feeling better. Um, and sometimes the, Sometimes that's enough, I think. But that's not what the Buddha was interested in. Uh, and it's absolutely necessary and important that we use the practice and all of the other supports and uh, relationships in our lives to really establish and develop a really healthy, strong, and stable sense of self. That that's absolutely essential. And what the teachings are pointing toward is that there's also something else uh, that's available for us. Uh, 
A few of the uh, teachers throughout the week have referred to Satipatthana. And so just to clarify for anyone for whom that might be a new word, um, referring to mindfulness or the, probably the mindfulness sutta where these, most of the practices come from. So I'm familiar with three different versions of the sutta and I'd like to share a few uh, passages from the very beginning when the sutta opens. This is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of dukkha and discontent, for acquiring the true method, for the realization of nirvana. This is just a different translation. There is one path for the purification of beings, for going beyond sorrow and fear, for eradicating dukkha and distress, for abandoning weeping and tears, for attaining the right dharma. Probably meaning right view. There is a one going path. The one going or the direct at the beginning of all of these refers to the eightfold path. There is a one-going path for the purification of the actions of beings, for removing worry and sorrow, for being without vexations, for attaining great knowledge and wisdom, for accomplishing the realization of nirvana. So the sutta is pointed to something more than noticing if the breath is long or short, right? even after the more subtle awareness that is starting to track Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, thoughts, feelings, and perceptions. Um, there's something else. And there's a, you know, in the, you know, from the Buddhist stories, which is, you know, more folklore and, and maybe just funny, but, you know, really in the way everything is presented, there's a huge amount of confidence. There's a huge amount of confidence. Which, which I like and I appreciate. And, and I don't think, what came up for me first is that this doesn't really match or, or maybe doesn't really match the kind of humility that we might hope and ascribe uh, to long-term practice and that surety and confidence I find to be a really nice balance to the lists that show or present or suggest all the difficulties that we might have in the ways we get stuck and the things that block our freedom. The whole path starts with dukkha. We have the five hindrances. We have the three poisons, greed, hatred, delusion. We have the ten fetters. It's like it goes on and on and on. Uh, for me, that can be overwhelming. It was at the beginning. You know, it's like do the math. It's like by the time we add up the list, you know, there's like 23 ways that I'm screwed up. <laughs> you know, and at some point, it's like the one original sin starts to sound really good. <laughs>
maybe I'll just go back to church. One, it's one day a week, Sunday. It's for an hour. Compared to seven days, ten hours a day meditating. One day, right? And if you're lucky, at the end of church, someone will put a huge bowl of money in front of you. (laughs) So the the Buddha's introduction to mindfulness practice uh, really suggests radical transformation. The possibility that we might, instead of continuously uh, looking outside ourselves for happiness, that we might begin to rely on a more stable form of interior happiness. So what do the images convey? Well, there's a significant understanding that's being developed. And there's two possible ways that we can think about this. In simple terms, something is going away and something is being attained. Something is going away and something's being attained. Dukkha ultimately is going away. Distress, disquietude, suffering, anxiety, disconnection, going away. And what's being attained is insight, understanding, wisdom. We use the words insight, liberation, awakening, somewhat synonymously. And these two aspects of something being attained and something going away are mutually supportive. The attainment of insight is uh, alleviating the causes of dukkha, and in the absence of dukkha, insight is prone to arise more naturally. So, what's the insight? What do we know? What do we learn? What do we see? What shifts? What is most helpful? And how can we, how can we develop, develop a frame for that so that we can... Actually, Dave said that at the beginning in his check-in that re- retreat was mostly about planting seeds, not really about picking fruit. And it's okay to pick some fruit. You know, and, we, and we should pick some fruit, if we can, if we're able. So, and there's a lot of ways we can, this is just one framework, there's a lot of ways that we can talk about this, but two significant insights, the Four Noble Truths, 
and uh, the three marks of existence or the three characteristics. The Four Noble Truths, most of you are familiar with. I'll go through them. The three marks or three characteristics. Uh, Dukkha is also in this list. Impermanence, change, and not self. So three, uh, two uh, significant things that we come to understand along the path. The Four Noble Truths and the three marks or the three characteristics. So in, in two different set of teachings, we can correlate the Four Noble Truths with the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, and over here, the three characteristics with the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. So in the first foundation of mindfulness, contemplation of the body, uh, we have some evidence of dukkha, right? And we know that from sitting long hours of day, uh, long hours each day, the body is sometimes, and maybe for many of us, often unpleasant, okay? So we have direct experience on that level. Uh, The Buddha taught that from the get-go, we were all subject to the suffering of birth. We would be, through the course of our life, subject to old age and eventually death. The degree to which we uh, are not honest about that and don't see that, there's suffering. There's someone in my life, a family member who I'm very close with, and uh, have done a lot of restoration around the relationship, and it's really a very good, uh, good relationship. There's a lot of love, it's safe, uh, etc. And that person is getting much older, and their body is, you know, there's a variety of illnesses and, you know, chronic conditions and, they're in, and out, they're in and out of the hospital. I'll often get phone calls or emails. And I was at the doctor. I was at the emergency room. And so the body is not working as they would like. And it's scary. And uh, the body hurts. You know, there's a lot of physical pain. And it's, it's, it's been really difficult for me to, uh, honestly, to be patient as I watch how much suffering this person inflicts exclusively due uh, to the inability to accept that this is going to happen. It's so, so painful to watch. And I often want to, you know, go off on some Buddhist rant about how they're, you know, they're sticking the second arrow in. And it, you know, it wouldn't be appropriate. I wouldn't, because of the relationship, I wouldn't know how to say it in a way that's helpful but it's really painful. Of course, underneath the surface, I'm uncomfortable watching somebody I love be in pain. That's, it took me a while to see that, but that's actually what's happening. But just a really vivid you know, example of this teaching in, in my life. I also, I also work for hospice, and I, 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 I see the, I work a lot with families, and It's the same thing, you know, it's just a complete um, inability to integrate 
one of life's uh, most basic truths. You know, this, is, this is a law of nature. And the suffering is profound. You know? We're actually training to die well. We are training to die well with wisdom and insight so that we know who and what is passing and where. That's part of what we're doing. So in the second foundation of mindfulness, I think George introduced Vedana feelings. Um, We see the cause of suffering. So at the contemplation of feeling, we understand the aspect of personal experience that can lead to craving, which leads to suffering. Insight into the arising of dukkha reveals what is skillful and unskillful. So when we're pushing away anything, an experience in the mind or body, any mental or physical phenomena, hatred, aversion, resistance, etc., we suffer. And when we're trying to make something happen, seeking pleasure, wanting, greed, attachment, clinging, we suffer. And we see, I mean, we see this in the practice. And the more we sit, the more it becomes clear. I want what feels good when I, and, I, and, if, I, and if I get it and I lose it, I suffer. I don't want what doesn't feel. It's like a basic recipe. This is a law, this is a natural law or principle. And so we're looking, we're walking, and we're testing, is it true? You know, the Buddha said, the people at the front of the room said, it, could it be that simple? So we hold that question and we look at our own experience and see. So at the third uh, foundation, which Dave introduced, we see the third noble truth, cessation. So this is where we're invited to contemplate positive mental states, to become aware of them and to see how they offer, even if temporarily, a moment of freedom. I know for myself in my practice that as I did start to learn how to meditate, I, I basically had been trained to notice suffering in, in a variety of different manifestations. I became really familiar with dukkha. You know, uh, gradations of depression, uh, self-criticism... <laughs> a kind of heaviness and tightness that I carry. You know, I, I, I started to learn about all of that. And then there was the difficulty of holding that. That's, that's, not, that's not the person I wanted to see, etc., etc. And um, a teacher on retreat talked about noting. I was familiar with noting, but I was noticing stuff that was uncomfortable to, to look at and be with. The teacher talked about noting joy, and it blew, it it literally blew my mind wide open. And I don't know how I sat for so many years without hearing the Dharma, I mean, maybe I was in the room and heard those Dharma talks, but I didn't hear to really note and make a practice of paying attention and acknowledging well-being, you know, I didn't get the memo. 
And it happened on a retreat that I was, in fact, experiencing well-being. And once I heard the teachings, I started to look for it. And I would be sitting having lunch, and I would be like, holy shit, the whole morning has been really great. (laughs) I woke up feeling rested. You know, my mind is spacious, the body is light, my mind is clear. I sat with equanimity. There was some discomfort, but not too bad. I'm enjoying the sound of the birds. I feel really good. I'm fine. I'm actually fine. And so I started, I started, to, I started to pay attention to this. So this is, a, you know, this is a really strong encouragement to make it a part of the practice now, not later. You know, really just knowing that those mind states are going to be part of the experience. Look for them, right? And don't immediately go looking for the dukkha. It's okay. Dwell in it. Dwell in the well-being or the happy. It will go away. Don't worry. It- <laughs> and it's okay to enjoy. In fact, it's really it, joy is one of the seven factors of awakening that lead to full liberation. It's important to know that. Every single mind moment is a moment that a painful mind state has been displaced. Every single mind moment is a moment that a painful state has been displaced and is also the dissolving of unskillful conditioning. Every single moment of mindfulness. If you have one moment in a 45-minute sit, you've done that. This is the seed planting that David was referring to. This is the seed planting. And it's happening all the time. It's happening all the time. In, at the fourth foundation of mindfulness... Uh, We'll get into it a little bit more tomorrow too, more experientially. Um, I think of this as the wide angle view that we take that is observing the interplay between all three foundations of mindfulness and beginning to notice cause and effect. And when that happens, we're, we're beginning to, to notice the underlying conditions that move toward dukkha and Likewise, the underlying conditions that move toward well-being. It is, this is also happening naturally. Okay. So what's the practice there? It's noticing no desire. When desire is not there, you can, that can be a note or a label, right? You know, I, I know from interviews that um, many of us are really learning to get a hold of this technique of what, is it, what does it mean to apply a label? How do I do it? It's, you know, it's this internal nod or recognition. No desire. Good for you. No desire right now. No greed. I'm fine with this experience. Pleasant or unpleasant. There's actually no, there's no greed here. So you, so you acknowledge it. 
no laziness, no worry, no doubt. I have faith. I have faith in myself. The practice is working. I have faith in the mindfulness practice. I have faith in the walking. Something that teacher said on Tuesday was helpful. I have faith in the teachings. <clears throat> it's like a, it's, it's just a quarter degree turn in the mind. It, it's, maybe it's a, a matter of intention to, to pay intention to pay attention to these possibilities that are naturally going to arise in our experience. So, uh, what's the result? In the case of the Four Noble Truths, the Four Noble Truths are no longer the underlying philosophy that creates the motivation or inspiration for practice, but are themselves experiences to have in the insight we take to live our lives and further the practice. So we have insight into the truth of dukkha, we have insight into the truth of tanha, craving, wanting. We have insight into the truth of cessation because we have some experiences of it. We're not waiting for the fireworks, right? We're, it, there's a moment here, I'm okay. Right? Suffering has abated. Pay attention. Noted. Well-being, peace. You know, George said this to me three or four weeks ago on the phone. Note peace. Make it a label. Make it a label. So one way I like to frame the four foundations is we are honest about the difficulties in our lives. We're honest about the difficulties in our lives. We're aware of their cause. We're optimistic about their alleviation, and we're skilled in their removal. Okay, so this is where the path is going. <clears throat> That's a really old map that comes from uh, one of the commentaries. More recently, a teacher uh, that has... that some of us have been reading and sitting retreat with uh, someone named Biku Analayo, a German uh, monastic who's starting to teach in the United States. Uh, he offered a map recently that suggests a parallel between the three marks, the three characteristics, uh, and the four foundations of mindfulness. And, and, and so this is his model, not mine, and the languaging or the, sort of the orientation of how we look at the mind and body is a, is a little bit different. <coughs> One thing that he's suggesting is that when we turn our attention to the body, we, what we might notice is the body anatomically, you know, which is to say less personally, less me or I. So, you know, attention, we're placing our attention on the body and we're noticing sensation and, and he has directed practices for this that, that we're not necessarily teaching, but, you know, we notice the skin, we notice the flesh, we notice the bones. The suggestion is that if we 
have a relationship with the body that's less personal, less me or I, it's also less materialistic in a sense. Um, this is connected to a, um, uh, the Pali is asuba, and it creates a lot of, it basically translate as not, it translates as not beautiful, which elicits a lot of pushback often. But the idea is that we can become disinterested enough in the body that we're not addicted to seeking other people's body or attention for gratification. And we're not consumed in changing our body to impress others or to feel better. And the degree to which we can get a hold of that, we're going to suffer less. So the relationship here between Asuba is Dukkha. If we see the body and its, uh, if we see the body elementally, uh, in the in the Buddhist tradition, uh, wind, fire, earth, water, breath uh, has a wind element. George was talking about gravity. You know, just feeling the weightedness of the body in the chair or on the cushion. That's the earth element, right? George wasn't using that language, but you see what I mean? Just feeling. So there's no story to this. It's just, it's, it's, it's all somatic. You know, it's just the weight of the body pressing into the chair. You know, the teachings go into, you know, the blood is water. Uh, again, skin refers to heat, thermal regulation. And so it can get a little bit distract, um, abstract. But the teachings are pointing toward uh, anatta, not self. Um, this, this body is not mine in the way that we often think of it. So Analio says, this body is comprised of the same elements as nature. I cannot control them possess them or truly own them. This is the important part. I cannot control them, possess them, or truly own them. They are not me. They are not mine. This is intended explicitly as a contemplation. So uh, when he offers the instructions, he does a body scan like, you know, we've done a little bit with you. And he says, you know, just notice the skin, notice the bones, you know, etc. Notice the, uh, the quality of earth as you feel the weight of your body, you know, compressing into the seat or the cushion. And then, uh, you know, we'll recite these phrases uh, several times. Getting familiar with the non-ownership of body. So there's some detachment, healthy detachment. And not unique to Analio, but another court teaching is again to reflect on uh, the inevitability of death and in the tradition you know sometimes we'll be instructed in uh, corpse meditation at the particular retreat that I was introduced to some of this material uh, they put a skeleton in one of the interview rooms and we could go sit and just um, just be with the corpse you know just make the corpse the object of our attention that's the practice. 
And you can do this on your own, visualizing your a corpse or your own body as a corpse. If this body were to be left outside in the elements, in nature, it would decay. It is not exempt from this fate. It is not exempt from this fate. The body is impermanent. So in the, in the contemplation of the body alone, we have dukkha, suffering, anatta, not-self, and anicca change. In the second contemplation, Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, anicca, change. Right? We see it. This is, this is fairly simple. You're sitting and you're meditating. You're focusing on the breath. You're, you're, you're walking outside. And you have a pleasant experience. You note it. And you keep walking. You notice the belly feels funny. You're really hungry. You start thinking about lunch, and the mind just launches, and some, some, uh, you know, even if just the mind just gets really, really busy, you know, you've lost that sense of stability and calm, unpleasant, right? The mind and body are constantly, <coughs> constantly cycling between pleasant and unpleasant. If we look closely, and again, it's offered as a challenge in a sense, like look and see, is this, is this actually happening? And if it is, what can I control or do about it? How can I get a hold of, how can I get a hold of this? And who is getting a hold on it? Or not? And then at the third foundation, citta, again, we see, we see impermanence. Desire, strong desire for food. It's, you know, 11.30, we're going to eat soon. Get to the kitchen. We don't like what's being served for lunch. Change, impermanence. We eat, we like the food, uh, we eat, uh, we're emotionally eating, we overeat. Not only does the body not feel well, maybe there's some guilt. Um, I don't know if I can reproduce it. I'm remembering a, a joke that David said. We were talking about a comedian and um, something like, you know, the meal, I'm not done eating when the, f what's, you say it, Dave. The meal is over when I hate myself. Yeah, the meal. <laughs> so clearly you get that one. <laughs> It's brilliant, right? The, the meal is not done with the first helping. The meal is not done when the food is gone. The meal is done when I hate myself.
so we're, wa we're watching the interplay. We're seeing, we, we have to see, we have to see change. We, we have to see change. I'm in a year-long training with a group of maybe 31 or 32 people, and we meet uh, four times a year for a, a residential, there's a residential part of the training, and then we do a lot of independent work, and we have to be in touch with each other through Skype and stuff like this, but we're together four times a year uh, in community like this. And I'm almost at the end of the year, so I've met with them three times. And the last time I was there, I was, I was noticing that I wasn't happy. Uh, I was a little bit stressed out. When I looked closely, the most helpful label was aversion. I was, I'm an aversive type. I mean, that's my, that's my go-to. And the aversion was so, so strong that it was clouding my whole experience. I wasn't having, and I'm thinking, you know, I paid some money to be here, and it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity to be away from, you know, the busyness of my work week. Uh, it's a training in, in, in the Dharma and Buddhism, and we're reading the suttas and, and the commentaries, and we're talking about them, and it's one of the things that I love to do more than anything else, and I'm not enjoying myself. I've got my own room, it's out in nature, the day is very spacious. I mean, it's, for me, it's literally idyllic. And underneath the aversion, I noticed a lot of judgment. I didn't like basically anybody in the program. <laughs> 31, 32 people. Uh, and none of them quite got it. I got it. <laughs> I was practicing the right way, and I was, you know, and there was just a huge amount of judgment, huge amount of judgment. I mean, I was very, very you know, they're not studying enough, and they're not, you know, and, you know, why are they even here? They must be having a midlife crisis. They don't really know. Very, very, very judgmental. And we, ha as part of the training, we have small group discussions that meet in the morning and that meet in the afternoon. And when I really started to track this, I was a wreck in like the hour leading up to the small group, both in the morning and in the afternoon. And, and that really got my interest. That, I mean, it took me three quarters of the year to really start to figure this out. That, that piece, that hour really, really got my interest. So I started to pay attention, and what I realized that I was really nervous to go into the small group, which had us dialogue, required us to really dialogue with one another. Throughout the rest of the training, I could stay sort of in my old world, relatively isolated, just kind of bitching and moaning about everyone else, you know, in my own head. But I didn't really have to engage if I didn't want to. What I realized was that I was scared of not being seen or liked or accepted by the group. I would say something dumb. I would, 
not know the right thing to say. You know, someone else would have a, a you know, a really good grasp on the teachings and um, they would know more than me and uh, whatever. I wouldn't be seen, I wouldn't be welcomed in, I wouldn't be loved. Most of the people were between, you know, uh, 50 and, and this, this is not the only reason, but you know, I, was, I was quite young, I am quite young in this group and um, I wouldn't fit in, I wouldn't be loved. So I was afraid to go into the group, and uh, when I noticed this, I just I just labeled it fear. You know, I just saw, I just said I'm afraid. You know, I'm afraid. I'm fear. And so the, the what what happened was that the resistance is it's kind of like the story I I told a few days ago. The resistance softened. I could feel it in the body. I, I could really feel the body soften. And there was an openness. And the openness felt more uh, citta, mind was open. What happened was once I saw my suffering, I had a sense of its universality. You know, it was like just this unavoidable situation. And that these people also suffered. Maybe not in this program, maybe not in this particular way. And I became very interested in them as people. And more personally for me, I became, there was a sense of knowing that my healing was completely reliant on connection and intimacy. And I had to be willing to be afraid, go into the group, say something dumb, be humble enough to listen, and just be a part of the experience. And just learn, you know, uh, what it was, just learn what it was going to teach me. But, I mean, it had already taught me. I mean, that was it. That was the lesson. Um, And what followed the insight was joy. I was happy. It's the same thing that happened, you know, on another retreat when I just named, named Dukkha. So you can see that you can see the change. You know, you can see the the progression. So what all of the, you know, both models, you know, both maps, uh, what they what they ultimately point toward is that we have an ability to test the solidity of our perceptions. That's mindfulness. That's what we're doing. That's mindfulness practice. In that investigation is testing the solidity of self, period. And once we see impermanence, we see the not-self nature of thoughts and feelings. Yes, I'm aversive. Yes, I was afraid. No, those people weren't bad or evil. Yes, I was capable of openness, kindness, receptivity toward myself and a willingness to learn from others, etc., etc. So which self is more true than the other?
So specifically in terms of the three characteristics, we come to understand that the difficulties, the dukkha in our life result from not recognizing and honoring natural laws or principles, namely change. Everything is changing. In that the level of difficulty we experience, the level of difficulty we, we experience, is entirely connected to how attached we are to our views, ideas, beliefs, which is our conditioning. Which ultimately is an inability to act and respond from an understanding of anatta, of not-self. There's a, a, a writer, a poet who lives in Vermont, who's my favorite, uh, my favorite poet. His name is David Budbill. Uh, considered arguably to be the best living person writing in the uh, Buddhist hermit monk uh, tradition. <laughs> He moved from New York City to Vermont and uh, gave the mountain he lives on a name. And uh, by my estimation, brilliant writer, uh, really well uh, schooled in, in Buddhist thought and, and Buddhist practice, and uh, an interesting capacity to be, in much of his work, really, really transparent about, uh, particularly these themes actually that I talked about tonight, uh, really very self-effacing, very honest. Uh, and ironically, a couple days ago, this poem uh, came to me, uh, my, my sweetie who I don't uh, t talk to on the phone when I'm on retreat, we'll send each other a text sometime if I'm working but not sitting the whole retreat, and uh, this came to me the other morning. It's called The Three Goals. The first goal is to see the thing itself, in and for itself, to see it simply and clearly for what it is. No symbolism, please. The second goal is to see each individual thing as unified, as one with all the other 10,000 things. He drinks a lot, by the way. <laughs> In this regard, a little red wine helps a lot. The third goal is to... The third goal is to grasp the first and second goals, to see the universal in the particular simultaneously. Regarding this one, call me when you get it. This is the subtlety of the Dharma that Dave pointed to last night. So what are the... Uh, or how can we, in really, 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 really simple terms, talk about uh, the fruit 
of the practice or uh, the fruit of wisdom. Another teacher named Andy Olensky says, we just see things differently than we did before, Mm -hmm. period. We just see things differently than we did before. He also said, we have deep, (coughs) humble, and reoccurring change. This has almost a a koan effect to it. It struck me immediately. I wrote it down. I knew I wanted to spend some time with it, but I didn't know what it meant. We experience deep, humble, and reoccurring change. So as I sit with this, what's coming up for me is simply that in practice, um, A mind moment of mindfulness creates the possibility of another moment of mindfulness, which creates a moment, another moment, and this is how the practice develops. And more broadly, some level of change facilitates another level of change, which facilitates another level on and on and on and on. Insight creates the conditions for insight, which create the conditions for insight, which creates the conditions for insight. Or insight creates the conditions for the alleviation of ignorance, greed, hatred, delusion, etc., 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 etc. In the humility piece is really interesting, and this evokes for me the possibility of uh, humble confidence, humble hyphen confidence. And I think actually that there's a practice in here also. And, and I invite you to do this. When there's a distinct state of well-being, a distinct state of well-being, peace, tranquility, whatever it is, look, look around for the self. And what I mean is, as you go through the day, get a felt sense of I, me. What is, what is the, what does it feel like somatically? What does it feel like? It has a, in the mind, it has a felt sense. When we're, really, when we're really struggling and really caught up, the sense of self is very, very strong. It's, it's very prominent. It's very solid. The mere eye is clear. I'm angry at that person. I'm dumb. I screwed up. It's, I mean, and the list goes on and on and on. When there's a remarkable state of well-being, look and see where that is. Not to be found. Or, you know, I think of the self on a gradient scale. Solid, significant, causing all sorts of problems to moderate to, you know, just we can barely sense it. We can barely see it. If when we are as happy and contented and as wise and as skillful as possible and simultaneously there's no sense of self, there's no one to take credit for that well-being. And the yield there is really just gratitude and humility. 
That's really all that's left. The confidence is not in oneself in the conventional sense, but in the inherent workability of the whole situation of me, my life, the practice. <coughs> and the gratitude is because we get, we get a chance to participate in that. We get a chance to be here and do the practice. I get the opportunity to try to figure out how to share the practice. And uh, Andy's co-teacher, Taranea, says, we simply relate to all phenomena less personally. We simply relate to all phenomena less personally. So let's just sit together uh, for just a moment or two in silence.